1 Peter 2, beginning in verse 4. As you come to him, a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God chosen and precious, you yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house. To be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. For it stands in Scripture, Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone, chosen and precious. And whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. So the honor is for you who believe. But for those who do not believe, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone and a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. They stumble because they disobey the word as they were destined to do. This passage that I just read deals with two very distinct but at the same time very interwoven doctrines. They deal first with who the Lord Jesus is and then with who we are to be in Him, who He is and who we are to be in Him. For today, though we'll study a lot about us, I want us to especially fix our thoughts and our worship upon the person of Christ and who He is and see even his underlying ministry in the testimonies of what takes place as we study. I want to remind us, though, that being by nature self-focused and self-centered beings, it seems always our first inclination to jump to the second part, the who we are, and to think first about what God can do for us. And I want to say that that's not altogether wrong. That's not altogether wrong, not an altogether wrong thing to do. Recall the disciples, they're in the boat and the storm comes up and Jesus is sleeping and they go into a panic and they run over to wake Jesus up. And he chides them for their lack of faith and he speaks to the storm and it stops. But the fact is what they did was the right thing. They didn't know what else to do. And so who do they turn to first? And that's Christ. And so for us to quickly turn to see what God can do for us is not necessarily an altogether wrong thing to do. As we are faced with the difficulties and the fears of daily life, not knowing of any person or any other source of help that can fix our troubles, God is the one who can fix those otherwise unfixable things of life. So then again, in that sense... That's exactly what we're supposed to do, to think first about what God can do for us. He is our ever-present help in times of need. As I ponder on these things about why someone, especially an unbeliever, who knows very little about God or perhaps doesn't know Him at all, would still reach towards such an unknown source of help, crying out, God help me, when they don't know God. Why would they do that? I'm reminded of the words in Ecclesiastes 3 that it tells us that God puts eternity in the hearts of all men, all women. And so there is that sense of who He is and His involvement with us that's resident within even those who have never heard the name of God. Thankfully, God does not just deposit us here on this earth and then leave us to get by on our own. 
He puts special provisions within our souls. He puts thoughts and answers within us, within our minds, our hearts, that may not come to the surface uh, until we really need them. And Him being filled with mercy and grace, it seems that His first level of help is in the form of hope. And I've been pondering that word all this week, hope. It's not often that a person who doesn't know Christ will call out to Him because they have faith in Him. Because for them, faith has not yet begun. Not yet developed within their hearts. So then, in those initial moments of, in the hearts of those who don't yet believe, it's mostly hope that provokes them to cry out to God for His help. Hope is a strange but very needful phenomena. And God has put hope within every soul. Every soul. I confess that even after all my years of knowing God and learning of His ways, that gracious gift of hope still remains a great mystery to me. Thankfully, again, as I said, every soul created on the earth has at least some measure of it. Some measure of it in some form or another. And again, it probably does relate back to Ecclesiastes 3, where God has put the sense of eternity in our hearts. But whatever God's purpose in giving us hope, I'm very thankful for it. It's at least a beginning point to which our hearts can reach when the natural realm holds no answers for help. As we search through these scriptures, we find that hope has a very essential role in the beginning steps of faith. Hope is part of faith. It's that essential connection between us and God in relationship. And though it it might be very fledgling in its uh, infant state in an unbeliever or a brand new believer, it is intertwined with the possibility of faith. Listen to these words about faith in Hebrews 11. And notice how faith and hope are intertwined together. Verse 1 of Hebrews 11. Now faith is the substance of things hoped for and the evidence of things not seen. Faith is the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. These words tell us that we first hope for the unseen answer that we need. God help me, we cry out. We hope. We hope He's hearing. We hope for whatever it is we're calling out to Him about. We first hope for those unseen answers. And then as we do that often enough, faith begins to develop within our hearts. Especially as we see what we have hoped for and what we've called out for becomes as it becomes real to us. And that's what these next words are about. The unseen hope becomes substance. Now, faith is the substance. Substance is something that you can touch. Faith is the substance of things hoped for. So as we continue to hope, and as those hopes become real, we start to develop faith. But we have to somehow know that our hope has become substance, has become real. And to do that, you and I have to go back and 
watch carefully what God is doing. See the testimony that He has to us as we cry out in hope and prayer. Now, quite often those answers that He gives to us are not exactly what we hope for. And sometimes we get confused about that because it's not what I hoped for and it's not what I prayed for. And we get confused and and often we'll, without realizing it, we'll miss out that He really did give a good answer, the right answer. And especially later on, if we'll take a long view look at so much of what we have hoped for and prayed for, God will open our minds and we'll be able to look back and we'll begin to see how gracious He was and how His hand actually was involved every step of the way in something that was some dilemma that we were in. And again, then as we see it happen more and more often, see those things that we hoped for and we asked for, we prayed for, and they become real. They become substance. Faith then starts to become real. We start to have faith. We actually start to believe something enough to put our reliance upon it. And that's what faith is all about. And that's when these next words, verse 6 in Hebrews 11, start to become our confidence. Listen to these words. Without faith, it is impossible to please Him, for he who comes to God must believe that He is, and that He is a rewarder of those who diligently seek Him. Now in those words, did you note the first requirement of faith? The first requirement of faith that's given in those words. It is to believe that He is, that God is, that Jesus Christ is. Is is a word that is a state of being. Do we believe, and that's the requirement, that He is, that He exists? In other words, our hope and our faith that He's speaking of here is not to be in some mystical concept of fate or of destiny or luck, but rather in a real person. And I know that we've talked about that several times here recently, but I want to remind us of what we said. We ask, how often is it that we hear someone say as they perhaps buy a raffle ticket or if they're about to compete in a a contest? They say, I sure hope I get lucky and win. And someone else responds back to them, well, you have an excellent chance at it. What are they saying? What is that conversation all about? What is luck? What is luck? What is chance? Those words are nothing more than whimsical and fanciful words. There's some vague appeal to some unknown and powerless figment of their imagination. Like speaking into the air and hoping that those molecules will somehow form and produce an answer for their help. It's foolishness. Because how useful, how effective are those figments of our imagination when our circumstances are very serious and very real. Our marriage is about to collapse. And we say, oh, I hope I'm lucky enough for this to work out. Our house is about to be repossessed. Do we just hope that we're going to get the chance to get lucky and all those devastating circumstances will somehow wisp away in the air and go away? All you have to do is listen to the conversations around you and you'll hear this taking place every day. Repeated over and over again. People saying, well I sure do hope this and I hope that. Having no idea who or what might answer their hoping. Again, all of this, all these banterings like this, they're foolishness. They're not worth the breath used to say them. 
These scriptures are telling us that there is a far better alternative, a far better source in which to place our hopes and our faith. That source is the real person of Christ. He is real. And He can actually reach His hand in to the circumstances of our lives and actually bring the objects of our hope and our faith to fruition. But we must take caution. It has to be in accordance with His truth here. The answers to our hope and our faith, they're conditioned upon this portion here in Hebrews 11.6. Listen to these words again. Without faith, it is impossible to please Him. For he who comes to God must believe that He, God, is, and that He, God, is a rewarder of those who diligently seek Him. For us to hope that the answers to our pleas will become substance and our dilemmas will be helped, we really do have to fully believe that He, Jesus Christ, our God, is. That He is real. That He is the great I Am. And when I prayed a while ago to put your hand upon this dear one, Chuck, and heal him, there's an actual hand of God that will do that. You and I have to believe that that is real. That's that's not some whimsical expression of our imagination. We have to fully believe that He, that Jesus Christ is, and that He is the great I Am, and He is able to do all things. He is a rewarder, a rewarder of those who diligently seek Him. That's what we are reading here in these scriptures. This is who... God is, who He is, who Christ is. He's described in so many ways all through these scriptures. Here in these verses, here in First Peter, He's called the living stone. What does that mean? He's a living stone. He's the possessor and the giver of eternal strength and power and eternal life. He's also here called the cornerstone. The cornerstone, the foundation on which all the realms of God and the realms of men are built. Jesus Christ is that cornerstone. He is the foundation on which all of the realms of God and men are built. The commentator Matthew Henry words it, Jesus Christ is the very foundation stone of all our hopes and happiness. He communicates the true knowledge of God. By Him we have access to the Father. And through Him we are made partakers of all spiritual blessings. That's who Jesus is. Let me read our passage again. As you come to Him, as you come to Christ, a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God chosen and precious, you yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood. There's a purpose in all of this. To offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. For it stands in Scripture, Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone, chosen and precious. And whoever believes in Him, notice it's a person, believes in Him, will not be put to shame. So the honor is for you who believe, but for those who do not believe, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone, a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. They stumble because they disobey the word as they were destined to do. As we're commanded in Hebrews eleven six here, the first step that we must take is to believe that God is, that He exists. Do you fully believe that God is, that He exists? I know you say it. I know I say it. But how much do we really believe that He is? We must. 
We must. It is the foundational basis of our salvation, our faith. He's not just some mystical figment of our thoughts. He's absolutely real. Here in this very passage, we're given two insights into two of the persons of who God is. God the Father and God the Son. Now the third person of the Trinity, the the Holy Spirit, is not specifically mentioned in this particular passage, but He is an integral part of all that's spoken about here. Now because of, of the meager intellect and the obstinate propensity that our attitudes towards sin, we often demand to see God. Lord, just let me see a little of who you are. I confess to you that I have done that often. I ask God on a regular basis to let me see His providence up close. Am I doing any different than this? And I have to question that. Do I need to see His hand to believe in Him and trust in Him? Is He trustworthy without me being able to see His answers to my prayers and those things that I've hoped for? I don't want to do that. I don't want to require that of Him. But He is gracious to me and He lets me see. He does let me just see the testimony of His hand working in so many places every day in so many lives. But for those of us who absolutely need something, He's given us very graciously the Lord Jesus. The Lord Jesus, He's a living, moving, walking, talking person. Historically proven person. You realize that there's not a person that's ever existed that has been argued more about whether or not he truly existed. And so Jesus has been proven more than any other person in all of history with so many different historical accounts of him. The Lord has given Jesus to the world in visible form. He exists. But here God mentions the only controversy then that mankind offers. And that is to deny, to reject who he is. That He truly is God. Not that He didn't exist, but that He truly is God. And that's what's being spoken of here in verse 7. Listen. So the honor is for you who believe, but those who do not believe, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. A stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. They stumble because they disobey the Word as they were destined to do. So now this choice as being brought to every person as they come up against the fact of Jesus and His existence, that He is. And it reminds me of the challenge that God gave in Deuteronomy 30. Let me read those for you, beginning in verse 15 of Deuteronomy 30. He says, See, I set before you today life and good, death and evil. If you obey the commandments of the Lord your God that I command you today by loving the Lord your God, by walking in His ways, and by keeping His commandments and His statutes and His rules, then you shall live and multiply, and the Lord your God will bless you. I call heaven and earth to witness against you today that I have set before you life and death, blessing and curse. Therefore, choose life. The challenge to us in our passage for today is that Jesus Christ, our God and Savior, has come in the flesh to save us from our sins. And we're faced with a choice. Do we accept Him and have eternal life? Or do we stumble over Him? Do we stumble over Him and reject Him and then suffer eternal death? Many, many deny the Lord Jesus and reject Him. And as they do, they immediately stumble. Why do they stumble? 
I have no doubt that it is the invisible hand of the other members of the Trinity guiding the feet of the unbelievers, intentionally causing them to stumble so that they may they will have to stop and consider their behavior and make a choice. And make a choice. I like that visible imagery that's given in stumbling. It's helpful to my way of thinking. The kind of event that no one can ignore or deny. The one who stumbles is often sprawling and is injured. And they know they have stumbled. The bystanders that are observing this person who's stumbling and sprawling, they see this spectacle and all of the accompanying failures that go into this person stumbling and falling. And then, of course, God is seeing it all take place because He sees everything. Nothing is hidden from the eyes of whom we have to give an account. And listen, it is who Jesus is that causes all of that to take place. Here he's confirmed to be one of two possibilities. One of two possibilities. He's either going to be our Savior or he's going to be our stumbling block. He's going to be either your Savior or your stumbling block. Now we may not readily recognize that it's Christ over whom we're stumbling. But please understand, he is exactly who it is that's behind it all. Our stumbling and tripping and falling in our marriages, in our work, in our finances. He is our loving creator and our prospective bridegroom to all who believe. And He wants every person to call out to Him. And when else are we more likely to cry out with pleas for help than in times of trouble where we would call upon His name? So then He, listen, He, the Lord Jesus, becomes both the cause of our stumbling and our help and our help in our time of need. And just because we can't see His invisible hand, we can't allow that to keep us from seeing Him and knowing that He is, and that He is the one who is causing us to stumble, so that we might turn and He then be able to be the rewarder of those who would turn to Him and seek Him. It's time to close. We'll pick back up on these words next week. But for now... You and I need to rest in the assurance that's given here in verse 5 of our text. That though it seems that all we do is stumble time after time, and we stumble over Christ and His teachings, we are, as verse 5 tells us, like living stones being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. All this is taking place. Let's pray.